Hi, Steph. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. So we have a great interview this week. It was really enlightening on workplace violence. Yeah, this was really, I thought, a special episode about a personal story and then what uh, he's doing about what happened to him. And anyway, I please listen. I think uh, we've all heard about violence in the workplace. Um, and I think uh, it's really great to hear that people are working hard to improve that piece of it. And mitigate it. And I think just the testimony of our own emergency department that is we know struggling with this kind of on a daily basis. Totally. It yeah. is every day, yeah. they said. So anyway, I hope you will enjoy that. We have some exciting things coming up. Nurses Week is in the next couple of weeks. There's been a lot of people working hard to create something uh, equitable and uh, lots of great uh, content. Uh, so I hope everyone can at least enjoy some of the events that are happening. I'm pretty excited. I have to say I'm pretty excited about Suits to Scrubs. And I think that there's, there's a piece of that where I think we all as nurses really want administration to know how hard we work and what it actually looks like with boots on the ground. So I think anybody who can participate in that, just to get the ear of, of the upper level folks is always good. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I think it's really important to uh, be able to highlight uh, all the hard work that we're doing and uh, and to people to see that face-to-face -face is um, is a little different than yeah. from from another area. So yeah. anyway, I, yeah, that'll be that'll be awesome. And a lot of different people are participating. Yes, that's lots true. of different leaders. Yep, so, there are. Uh, yep. I, I hope people can uh, enjoy that. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it. Anything going on with you, Les? No, it's just it's coming on on summer and everything's green and blooming and beautiful. Oh, and I, I hope know. everybody's getting outside for lunch and um, making sure that we're just enjoying enjoying uh like right coming out of harbor hiber, hibernation <laughs> at harbor nation harbor nation <laughs> hibernation and uh everybody is taking care of themselves yep all right and enjoy all right thanks uh so i'm steph and this is leslie hi nice to meet you nice to meet you thanks for joining today yeah. Yeah. So Matt, just tell us who you are and, you know, obviously where you work and uh, kind of your role in, in the emergency room and we'll start there. Yeah. Sure. So I'm a staff nurse for in the emergency department. I've been in the ED for a little over 15 years. Uh, first half of that was as an ED tech or as an EMT. Yep. And then I went back to nursing school and I've been working there as a nurse since, oh gosh, probably eight, eight years now, eight, nine yep. years. Uh, I always work nights. I'm mostly in charge. My kind of interests or RN4 projects tend to be in uh, kind of grassroots level staff education. We host a couple of different specialty fellowships and I, I help work with the trauma fellowship, which is on trauma specialty care. And I do some work with the education committee. I'm one of the co-chairs and then I help out with uh, some of our department's response in the workplace violence sector. So that's kind of most recently been what I've placed my time in. Yeah, yeah. yeah you seem um, not very busy at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I, I, I probably take, you know, with the RN4, you can take some a fair amount of non-productive time. I take a little bit less because I'm in charge so frequently. I like yeah. to try to stay at the bedside a little bit. Yeah. So I, I, I try to get in 
before my charge shift a few hours so that I can pretend that I can still do bedside nursing. Right. And you've stayed on nights, huh? That's kind of yeah, your, we, that your jam? So we have very few staff nurses uh, on nights. We probably only have three or four staff nurses that work uh, consistently. straight nights yeah. uh, consistently. And we only have two night charge nurses. So Christopher, who is one of our other uh, RN4s, he does the first half of the week and I do the second half of the week. And Saturday's kind of up for grabs that they make work with with other folks that kind of float into the okay. position. But we we don't have a lot of depth of experience on nights. So I've, I've yeah, stayed there partially because it works for my family and partially because I, I enjoy working with the folks that we have in our, our night staff. I think just sort of jumping right in, there's been a lot cool. of, you know, as nurses at the hospital, but also the public has been hearing a lot about workplace violence within the hospital specifically. And a lot of that is centered around our emergency room, emergency department. And we feel it's really important to highlight that and talk about it. And I think that we are hoping to get from you like a conversation going about what's that looking like from your end? And especially nights, like I think your perspective, I mean, it doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't happen during the day, but I'm sure <laughs> that nighttime there might be a element of an increase perhaps or maybe that uh, maybe not maybe, maybe that's not. just my that's may, might be my my misunderstanding but why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you guys are experiencing for real and we can kind of go from there so healthcare in general you know, no matter where you are is the highest workplace environment for experiencing violence for staff it, even even beyond like police work or firefighters. I mean, the, really the most that's dangerous incredible. place to work in terms of interpersonal violence is in healthcare. And that's that's kind of universal. What we see is that in our institution, the majority of workplace violence incidents occur in the emergency department. And then the, behind that would be our inpatient psychiatric units. So if most of our inpatient medical units may see one to two, maybe three incidents in a month, our inpatient units may see one to three incidents in a month, and our emergency department sees somewhere between 25 and 35 each month. So a, a pretty significant increase. Almost every day. I mean, if you broke it down a, a little bit, it would be, it, yeah. you could really say it, that every day something happens. Yes. So in in charge, we are often kind of the, the, the first step in terms of trying to de-escalate potentially violent situations. And at least once a shift, usually multiple times a shift, I'm involved in a conversation with a patient or a family member where I'm trying to prevent a potentially violent situation from happening. And we work very closely with our talented security staff. I think mm -hmm. our hospital security does a, a great job with the resources that they have and the staffing they have. And we work with, in our department, we have our kind of support staff are the EMTs or the ED techs and the mental health techs. And then we get resources from, from our resource staff, like the CPSAs. Those are the folks that are kind of one-to-one -one at the bedside with patients. And then as things kind of uh, escalate, they involve nursing staff or uh, nursing leadership. Do you get special um, training for de-escalation? Uh, so we, all of our staff, every, every nurse, every tech, every MHT, we all have MOAB, so which is okay, the yeah. kind of baseline standard. Yep. We can go through, we can electively go through PROACT, which is more of a verbal de-escalation. 
Okay. And that, that's used more in the inpatient psychiatric realm. It is less of a physical response to violence and more of a prevention and more of kind of de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. And it's kind of uh, identifying situations that are potentially violent and then trying to de-escalate them before they turn to violent. Moab is more of a responding to violent encounters uh, and keeping individuals safe. Moab is, a, I think, a good baseline. It kind yep. of puts everyone on the same page. All of our security officers have been through it, and it helps us all speak the same language in terms of how we would manage someone who is being actively violent or aggressive. Yep. But in terms of the the, the basics of verbal de-escalation, it's a lot of on-the-job on training. Uh, practice effective de-escalation and seeing what works and then using those skills and some genuine empathy, uh, trying to, you know, a lot of times showing up with a turkey sandwich and what can I do to help? Like that gets yeah, you a long yeah. ways with patients. Yeah, genuine empathy and food. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, truly. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so without violating HIPAA, obviously, are you yeah. able to give us some examples of what what a an occurrence looks like for you guys? Sure. So I, I think it's easy to pigeonhole a lot of our encounters as being psychiatric in nature. And I right. think mental health and our mental health boarding crisis in the ER, and which is national, it's, it's not right. unique to UVM, is certainly a part of that. But uh, many of our instances of aggression or violence are just due to behavioral issues. So it's the kind of intersection of uh, often substance use disorder, sometimes it's uh, pain or trauma, Sometimes it's homelessness. It, it often comes down to, it sounds silly, but some sort of unmet need in that patient's life. Yeah, um, right. that's not and, silly at all, yeah. You know, it it it's, uh, kind of brings it back to nursing school 101, but it's patients who are reacting in a way that they, they don't feel like they have any other way to react to the situation. So for me, my kind of watershed moment was about uh, almost two years ago now, where I had a patient who had been brought in on a mental health warrant but by our clinician's description was having really a behavioral crisis, was just acting out. And it was someone that was known to our department as having a history of violence. So he was brought in by the police and they, uh, you know, they transitioned care to our healthcare workers, to one of our nurses and one of our physicians. There was a mental health tech in the room and the police went to leave. And I asked them to stay, not in the room. And, big on giving patients a chance to interact with healthcare staff for their, their healthcare needs. And I think that law enforcement can be very coercive in those environments. So they, they kind of stayed nearby, but they weren't visible. And our nurse tried to start talking to them about the process for evaluation, and they didn't want to be part of that at all. So I, I got called into the room just to kind of explain why we do the things we do in terms of safety. And their response was they immediately punched me in the head. So I was, I, I blacked out. I wasn't unconscious for long, but I like bounced off a wall and a security officer was outside the room, stepped in. He got knocked out cold. Uh, and the only thing that probably kept that person from continuing to harm staff was the uh, response of five Burlington police officers. Uh, with, five? With Did you say five? Yeah. Five. Oh so gosh. they they had transported him with five officers due to officer safety. They didn't wow. feel like he was safe to transfer with only one or two officers. So they had, I mean, and that's pretty common is that someone will be arraigned in front of a judge 
and they will be deemed in that they require a mental health evaluation in the healthcare setting in the emergency department. And sometimes that's for assault. Sometimes that's for murder or attempted murder. And they are transported by police and then left in the ER because that's now a medical concern. So that's, that's what happened here. So five officers, guns and tasers drawn, they were able to de-escalate the situation and didn't harm anyone else. But then we had to wake up a judge and it's the middle of the night and it was very unique that we were able to have that individual lodged in prison or in jail for the night as opposed to staying in the hospital. I I mean, I had mild TBI symptoms after that. I had kind of post-concussive symptoms and more than that, I was afraid it worked for a while. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I can imagine. Kind of the repercussions from that lasted months and a lot of it was the I, I personally was like more more quick to recommend restraints or medications or I was a little bit more aggressive in my response because I was scared of getting hurt again and I, I took some self-awareness and some time but that's certainly gotten that's gotten better with two years of practice but after that event I worked I kind of reached out to our director director Tara Pacey and asked her you know what are we doing institutionally in terms of uh, protecting our staff and in terms of our workplace violence response. And she had mentioned the different kind of committees, their task force that we're working on. I said, who do you have from a clinical realm that's working on this? And she said, well, no one from the bedside. And then she said, uh, you're going to the next meeting. So uh, <laughs> I, I set myself up for it. Um, yeah. So after that, probably after that fall, uh, I've worked a little bit with our departmental and institutional, really network-wide workplace violence response, trying to figure out the best way to prevent and kind of evaluate patients so that we have a better sense that we can kind of de-escalate before these events happen. Are you less likely now to have the police leave the room? So no, I, I, I am still a, a really strong believer that we are a safe environment for healthcare. And when after police have transitioned care. So a, a police officers will transport people on a, a mental health warrant. So if they have, they have a direction of a judge to bring a patient to the emergency department for evaluation, if they potentially meet the uh, requirements for emergency evaluation, that's often that, that that direction is filled by the police. Sometimes they come in with crisis, someone from uh, from the Howard Center but mostly that is a police officer that transports. And once they have transitioned care from protective custody, because they're not in criminal custody, most of them are really in protective safety custody. We, I I try to get cops out of the room as quick as I can. And I think a lot of that's because people don't feel safe around the police. And I feel safe around the police. (laughs) Uh, I, I have very positive interactions with them. But I think we have to understand that many of our patients, especially those in in crisis, have very negative connotation about law enforcement. And doing what we can to put them at ease, uh, make them feel safe, that helps reduce some of those encounters. That being said, one of our new initiatives with the University of Vermont Police Department is that they are now rounding through our department on all shifts. So we are... We are a patrol location, just like they would any other places in the community or on campus. That's interesting. Put- I, 
I wondered a little bit about with how the Burlington Police Department are, is low on on police. Yeah. I mean, they're having a mm -hmm. similar staffing issue that we are, and I can only imagine that there's some community reverb for our hospital with that. Um, but that's an interesting solution to use some of the of the University of Vermont because they're actually police. Yeah. They're so they are sworn real, agency. Real deal. Yeah. Yep. They have uh, powers of arrest. They are no different than any other police yeah. agency in the state of Vermont. The benefit there's there's some kind of there's some balancing of resources. So the connection between the Larner College of Medicine. So we have a an academic and kind of healthcare side to our institution, and there's some financial and resource give and take between those. And we're trying to figure out a way that we can kind of in, incorporate some police staffing yeah. into our institution. Right. And and I think police presence in any manner, like you said, has has an effect. Yeah. And so it's yeah. something we we are very cognizant and cautious around. So they are not allowed in care areas. So the they'll come in and check in with security. They come up to the charge desk and check in with me around kind of behavioral issues or if we are even hands on with a patient and our security staff is, say, applying restraints to someone who is a danger to themselves or others, the police can't be involved with that if they see criminal activity. So if they see something where they would intervene in the community and assault someone who is so disruptive that it is to the point of disorderly conduct, it is disrupting the care of other patients. But really, if they are being violent, uh, having a police officer present allows them to respond very quickly to that. And sometimes having them just walk through the the waiting yeah. room on a day where there's like a little bit of smoldering agitation can be helpful. Kind of nice thing about the UVM cops, they wear green. They just like, they kind of look like community police officers. And they, they kind of friendly. Fit. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that's really what I'm looking for. Um, uh, having a little bit of a presence, I think, is yeah. very helpful. So I think we've heard about uh, metal detectors. And mm -hmm. so it, can you just kind of give us an update? Of give me an sure. update and kind of I, obviously this was spurred because of a lot of the things that have been going on there and also how it has a, how it's affecting everybody that's working yeah. in the ED. So the the addition of magnetometers was to reduce the incidence of violence with with weapons or adjuncts. So removing knives, guns. We've had, I've had chainsaws come in with patients, like machetes, axes. You know, there's, there's, I don't there's mean terrible. Black, black, black. <laughs> I mean, there, there's this really terrible story in the news from just this yeah. week where a social worker was was killed in um in I think it was in Brattleboro, well, with an axe. Oh, um, oh, I mean, God. really, really terrible. Yeah. Um, so if we can remove some of those items on the front end, I would refer to those as very low frequency, but uh, kind high, of high consequence or yeah, high impact. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's kind of like a halo procedure, but in terms of violent incidents. So many of the incidents with our patients don't involve weapons, but it's those patients that have already been changed into psych safe clothing or have an observer and have had their belongings secured. But right at the point of entry and triage, we now have the magnetometer. It's staffed uh, on two shifts. So from 7 a.m. until 11 p.m. We'd started just on evenings based on staffing, but they were able to extend that within the last two weeks. So we're now 7 a.m. until 11 p.m. And that is staffed uh, mixed between Green Mountain Security, which is a local vendor, 
and our own UVM security services. And they have two people out front. Basically, there's the sign out front that says something like, there are no weapons allowed. It mentions that we have the magnetometer up. And then folks that come in have to take their belongings and have them searched briefly. And then they have to walk through the magnetometer. And if someone has a weapon, like I'm a Vermonter and a Boy Scout and a farmer, I always have a pocket knife on me. If I were to come through as a patient or family member, I'd be given the option to put that into an envelope and they would secure it for me, or I could bring it back out to my vehicle and leave it there. All of those patients can be, so any patient that comes through the front door is also observed by one of our ED techs that's sitting kind of at the front desk with registration. And if there is someone who is in some sort of health crisis, so they appear to be in labor or they have a terrible traumatic injury and they are bleeding or they are short of breath, you know, people who need immediate intervention to threats to life, uh, they can bypass that system. Yep. So we have kind of a medical safety check. But I, I think it's still reasonable to ask family members to go through that because, yeah. again, it makes sure that we have a safe environment. We have kind of a baseline of safety. Some other things that security is doing there, we're going to move to a no bag or small bag policy. We're going to give folks a clear plastic bag they can put their belongings in so that okay. we don't have a lot of bags come through. It also speeds up that check-in process a little bit. What you were saying earlier about kind of when violent incidents happen, uh, Roz King, who's our program manager for emergency department research, she is doing some research or helping uh, direct some research right now in the realm of workplace violence. One of the things they found is that Wednesdays around noon, that's the the time when it's most likely to have, uh, so right, Inter right like now. Like right now. I know. <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, Interesting. And, and, you know, we're kind of looking for some correlations, like why would that be? Because yeah. I would think, gosh, it's going to be at night because that's when the drunks come in. And it's not necessarily that. Uh, it's You have huh. to look at you know, what's going on in the community? How is care being affected in the emergency department in terms of our crisis services and psychiatry? Right. What other resources are being flexed or pushed on that are have the reaction of potential violence? So we are trying to look at the kind of epidemiology of why it happens so that we have a, a better sense of how we can respond to it. Right, because it's. I'm sure some of it is a systemic community. It's like these yeah. layering of different effects that then get kind of filtered into the ED when violence happens. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trying to right. figure out what those are. Yeah. And it is super fascinating. And I'm sure, like, I was on Pulse Check this morning, and you know, you guys have a lot of borders right now. A lot in a lot 30, of 30 medical borders and I think 11 or 12 psychiatric this morning. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, and that's a right there. Just that would be a busy ED. Yeah, that's uh, our physical, our, our capacity physical footprint yeah. is 45 bed. Right. So uh, that means it's difficult to get anybody acutely, an acute issue in, which all of that on top of whatever's happening in the community escalates the pulse sure. of the of, of the ED. So it's tricky. It is really tricky. Yeah, it definitely pushes higher acuity patients into our waiting room. It increases yeah. length of stay. And I think as you have patients and family members that become frustrated with that, right. that, they, that frustration afraid. and agitation you know, turns into verbal aggression and then has the potential to turn into violent aggression. Right. And that's, again, it, a lot of it comes down to, to fear and the unknown, just not understanding what's happening. Exactly. And, 
you know, being afraid for the the well-being of their family members. Exactly. Uh, one of my coworkers was t- talking about the signs that are up, and I don't exactly know, but something about we have the right to refuse care based on your behavior is sort of the sort of the gist. Of, maybe I'm getting that wrong. For for a long time, we have really focused institutionally on the our uh, patients' rights, and yep. I think in the last, really, just the last six months to a year, we've uh, pivoted towards patients' rights and responsibilities. And through a a conversation, so Tim Leahy is Dr. Tim Leahy, who's one of our ethicists. He's great, yeah. He he is, and he strongly believes in patient access and their ability to access care, but he also believes that patients have to behave in such a way that our staff feel safe caring for them. And some of that comes down to negative language towards staff that you know could be bigoted towards you know race or gender or uh, or or religion or sexual orientation it but it could also be you know violent interactions and part of that patient rights and responsibility says that our patients one of their responsibilities is that they have to behave in such a way that our staff feel safe caring for them and there's the the inpatient side they have a new model called the gosh, I think it's called the CCRT. It's the uh, Collaborative Care Response Team. It it Uh was started as the Behavioral Response Team. Behavioral Response Team. I think what they found is that it's it's really less about behavior and more like how do we put the right resources in the right place to respond to people's needs. And that's a group of um, physicians, psychologists, and then social workers that can respond to a patient and it's usually within, I think, 24 hours. So it's not an immediate crisis moment, but they can meet with a patient who may have had some negative interactions with staff and say, you know, these are the expectations we have, but also what can we do to help you through this? Like, what can we do to yep. support you so that you feel like you're getting the care that you need, and but in a way that it doesn't negatively impact the people caring for you? And yeah. that's uh, having a system like that where you get resources in place where you kind of set some standards, but also say, our first priority is giving you great care. Please let us do that. This is what we need to do to do that together. Right. Like sort of allow it. Somebody needs to be care for a bull, you know, right. like, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, like, for us to be able to care for them. Right. Yeah. And then we, we see that a lot in the emergency department is that, um, people will be uh, intoxicated or violent or really, really verbally aggressive. And a lot of times it comes down to uh, during pediatric grand rounds this morning, the presenter was talking about the idea of no hit zones or no hit environments. And a lot of times it comes down to saying to people, what can I do to help? And I think that it kind of turns things around a little bit. People are so aggressors. You're so used to people kind of hitting up against their behavior that they respond to it. And instead you're like, gosh, you seem like you're having a rough time. What can I do to help you? That that it kind of disrupts that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think if you uh, uh, use that model, you know, not always. Sometimes you get punched in the head, but uh, uh, oftentimes you can de-escalate a situation where people say, "Oh, you know, maybe this person really does want to help me out. Maybe this nurse or this this tech or this LNA or th- this MHT really does want to help me." 
maybe I should engage in my care a little bit so that I can I can access the care that I need. It's, it's why I'm here in the first place. Right. And then practicing that is important to you as, you know, healthcare providers, because I think it's easy to kind of get into that position and be like defensive or like, you know, you have the patients that you're or scared you know, or scared. Or scared. Yeah. 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 Or yeah. whatever your reaction, because we're all, you know, we're all comes down to it, like emotional human beings. And so having that practice yeah. of, of being able to stay calm, go in, in with like an, an, with an empathy can be super important. And, but I also think that it's important to like you said, highlight the responsibility of the patient. Because, because that's also a form of patient-centered care. Yeah. Like expecting as an adult human being to be also responsible for your own, like having that expectation is patient-centered, yeah. I think, in yeah. a lot of ways. No, I... I'm wondering if you, how you see things going from here. Do you see things, that's a loaded question, and I think that means you need a crystal ball, <laughs> but <laughs> is it feeling better Put, do we feel like we're putting things in place that are starting to really help make a change? I think are... that the, uh, well, so what you say about the where the world is today, <laughs> I think that kind of emerging from three years of social isolation, maybe yeah. the last, uh, you know, two years prior, but, but um, I, I think societally that we did have uh, some, some changes in behavior and that yeah. is only... Uh, magnified in the healthcare setting when people yeah. are in are, are in health or mental crisis. Looking at the data, I mean, a single data point only shows uh, a moment, but the last two months, our incidence of violence had decreased slightly. So there there may be some some positive uh, change there. Uh, I I think that kind of anecdotally things have settled a little bit. Uh, there is always the potential for violence. And I think that's something I kind of have to remember myself is like, yeah. we have to kind of always be evaluating ourselves and our environment and our patients in a way like, how can I make sure that my staff stays safe? How can I make sure that my patients stay safe? How do I keep myself safe in this environment? So a lot of that comes down to awareness, but in, in terms of how the, the hospital and our department is doing, I think it's it's maybe a little better some of that may come from our response. We have increased staffing and security. We have, we're, we're using more psychiatric specific trained nurses in the emergency department. We have well-trained MHTs and techs in our department, the, the magnetometer use. But I think a lot of it comes down to just staffing and bodies and having yeah. enough people to Presence. be able to respond. And you may not know this, um, there's some legislative stuff going on with workplace yeah. place violence. So the, the two big ones, S36 and S89. S36 actually made it out of the Senate maybe two weeks ago. I had the opportunity to uh, to provide testimony for S36 twice, uh, once in front of wow. the, the Senate uh, subcommittee, and then once again in front of basically a, a legislator's breakfast that was hosted by the Vermont Association of Hospitals and Health Systems. And that, that's kind of the other advocacy I'm doing in terms of workplace violence prevention. S36 gives police officers the power of arrest for assaults which they did not witness. So up until now, if someone had assaulted a healthcare worker and a healthcare worker is a protected individual by law, they would be given a ticket and they could remain in place. So they would have to appear in in court in front of a judge at some point in the future, but they they wouldn't be arrested and removed. 
unless the officer had observed that event. For uh, this new legislation, S-36, allows a police officer basically to have the power of arrest in those situations based on testimony. So uh, the, the victim would give a sworn statement and say that they'd been assaulted and that they had been harmed, that they felt pain, and then that individual would be removed. So they'd be taken to jail. I think we have in, in healthcare, we have this like deep feeling of responsibility to care for folks. And one of the concerns from a kind of a, other voices in the community was that this would be utilized kind of willy nilly. And we'd say, oh, this person hurt me, drag him out of the ER. Right, that's, I, that's really I, that's... not how I see it being utilized. I think that our hope is that the, the most violent offenders, the people that we just can't care for safely, who have harmed staff, the emergency department or the hospital in general is not a safe environment for them. So right. the going, going to jail where they still have access to health care on some level, if they don't have an immediate health care need, like a, a threat to life, they have something that doesn't need immediate response, those people can be transported to jail. It, it seems like a small step. And a lot of folks, when I describe this, say, I, I can't believe that didn't already exist. Um, but that's that's uh, our kind of first step. My feeling is that that's going to pass. It made it past the Senate, out of the House, and it needs to go to the, the general legislation for to, to pass, and then we'll go to the governor's desk. But my guess is that's going to pass. The other one is for um, S89, which I don't think has gotten out of committee. And that's for the creation of a custodial healthcare facility, what is sometimes called a forensic healthcare facility. And that would be, it's kind of like a, a mix between a hospital and a prison. And yeah, it's, it's like jail, it it's like jail hospital. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the easiest way to describe it. It kind of oversimplifies what it does. It's less about the, the penal or penitentiary side of things and more about being able to deliver care to people in a very controlled, safe environment. Correct. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And Vermont doesn't have that capability right now. And it's why sometimes people that are kind of in that kind of strange, sometimes frightening limbo space end up in the healthcare setting because that's really the need they have. When in reality, the emergency department is not a safe environment for them to be in. So, I mean, we um, even inpatient, we've had to care for inmates, you know, on a level of needing chemotherapy, say, or needing, yeah. you know, and something they're not able to provide in a jail setting. And right. and that's also, I mean, in in some ways, it's a little, it's slightly humiliating for the, the inmate slash patient because they've got armed yeah. guards, they're shackled mm -hmm. to the bed, they're, you know, it's a bizarre sort of setup. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, but it's all it's we not have. Something that our our staff are often comfortable doing. Uh, right. It's a, lot, trained, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask to, for. Yeah. yeah we yeah. don't. It, that's not part of our our job. Yeah. 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 So. So I, I had a conversation with a group of community leaders uh, last fall, where there's a group of, there's a lot of folks on this kind of panel. There are probably forty people there, uh, and it's network level hospital administration there are community and business leaders there are folks from law enforcement from mental health care from uh, the judicial side i think there's a, a judge that sits on this panel but 30 or 40 folks and they were kind of asking about the effect of violence on healthcare workers and uh, i was asked to go chat with them and i kind of told a, a more in-depth version of the story of me being assaulted 
and how that had affected me. And after that, one of the folks there had asked me to to give testimony to the the, the Senate hearing. And uh, there were departmental directors from a couple of hospitals from CVMC and from North Country and Rutland. And then there were two or three nurses that also gave testimony. And I, I think we kind of all said the same thing is that our our staff doesn't feel safe that this one small tool would give law enforcement a, a little bit of leverage in helping to increase our safety and that it's not about abusing this power. It's about kind of a, applying it judicially as needed for the, the safety of our patients and for our staff. I, I had not expected to take this kind of small committee work all the way up to that level, but I actually found that to be very rewarding for rewarding. myself to be yeah. able to kind of connect on that level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also think we, as the community, like the healthcare setting, everybody should feel safe, right? Like you should feel like that's yeah. what we're here for. We're like kind of a safe haven and the workers themselves aren't feeling safe, then that's going to inevitably break down and among it, your care. Yeah, it impacts so, care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you have to kind of start at that level and then hopefully improve all everybody's experience. This has been really interesting for us. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I just, I can't wait to see kind of how things hopefully change. We have some it, good conversations that we're yeah. starting now. Um, and some good work. I, yeah, I, I would agree. I think the, the work that our administration, that our security service is doing, the things that we're doing in the emergency department, the collaborative care model that they're using in patient but connecting at uh, a legislative level, working with the Burlington Police Department, working with Sarah George and the district attorney's office. Mm -hmm. it, and then on a network level, um, you know, things like the workplace violence flag for violence that yeah. shows up in Epic and FYIs. I think all of these things kind of, it's not any one thing that makes the big difference, but right. when you take them all together, that it, it does add to a slightly safer environment for yeah. our staff. And that's what I'm looking for. That's interesting. I didn't realize there was a flag in Epic. That makes sense. So in the FYI system, uh, in the same way that it would flag someone for an oncologic emergency or right. for Correct. an interpreter need, there's yep. one that's a bleeding a disorder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yep. it, we very specifically uh, had the language say that uh, describing the behavior that they had exhibited in the past, giving a date of service or event so that you could kind of figure out what precipitated that or what happened. And then there's a review process. So there were something like 300 existing flags. So we had to go through all of the old ones, figure out which ones we could expunge and get rid of. And then every year we have a group of DEI, ethics, uh, care staff, uh, compliance, and we have to go through them yearly and make sure, are there any trends? Are we applying this incorrectly? Is there bias involved? Yeah. Uh, because we want to do so in a way that is fair to those patients, that is objective as possible, but also in a way that we can ensure our staff safety. Yeah, Part of that amazing. will be those patients that have been deemed having a potential risk for violence, we will have a door sign and it is non-specific. It's something like an exclamation point in a triangle. And the idea is that I'm a nurse at the bedside, I've cared for this patient all day, and I understand that maybe they're a little reactive to loud noises and might uh, have a behavioral component to that. Someone from our nutrition services brings in dinner, 
and brings in a tray and kind of brings it right up to the bedside, startles them, and they react violently. That flag at the bedside or at the doorway would kind of let everyone know that, hey, maybe you should check in with the nurse or the MHT first yeah, yeah, yeah. before you have a direct interaction with this patient. Caution sign. Yeah. Wow, cool. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you want to share? Like, those are all. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Really great conversation. Well, thank you. No. So in the ER, I'm kind of the point person, but there are folks working all across the hospital and from a lot of different departments that have been really added a lot to to safety in this work. Folks are welcome to reach out to me if they have questions about this, and I'm happy to connect them with people in the kind of institutional work that we're doing on workplace violence. That's yeah, great. That's awesome. Matt, yeah. thank you so much. It's really, really enlightening yeah, yeah. as a nurse on the this side of, you know, the emergency room always feels very different. Okay. We're on the far side of the ocean, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people always say for us as oncology nurses, they're always like, how do you do that work? And, you know, and that's, and, you know, it always goes, it's all the same. We have our specialties, right, that we're passionate about. I'm glad that there are so many different types of nursing specialty because there are, you know, some sometimes folks folks will ask me, you know, you've been in the ER for 15 years. What are you going to do next? I'm like, well, this is really all I can do. (laughs) Um, this is this is like what i'm i'm meant for and i think in many ways that you know thank goodness there are so many specialties because there really is a nurse that fill everyone every spot it's so true yeah well i'm sure that you are happy that experience happened to you but i think you've really turned it around into something that is that is now something that you can like pay it forward. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, cause not everybody could do that. Some people would have probably left the profession. I think that's a very, yeah. like you said, waterside moment and grateful that you were able to do the work that you're doing. And maybe you would have done it anyway, but I think probably put a little more passion into it. Yeah. It, admittedly, the workplace violence work that I've done is, it's not my like initial passion. I love critical care. I love pediatrics. I yep. love trauma. Uh, I'm an ER nurse. Yeah, all those good things. But I do get uh, great satisfaction from knowing that uh, the the kind of time and effort and the work I do here may have positive effects on our institution and on our staff and on our patient safety, and that's fulfilling in a different way. So, so thank you for recognizing that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. All right, Matt. We'll keep you posted. Yeah. I hope to not see you in the ED anytime soon. Yeah, no. Say it all the time. I hope I see you in the groceries. All right. Take care, Matt. Bye, Matt. Thank you. Thank you.